This death beam will operate silently, but effectively at distances as far as a telescope could see an object on the ground, and as far as the curvature of the Earth would permit it. It will be invisible and will leave no marks behind it beyond its evidence of destruction. An army of one million dead annihilated in an instant would not reveal, even under the most powerful microscope, just what catastrophe had caused its destruction. Welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today, we are going to be talking about death rays. Now, on this show, we, we've we talked about a lot of very real, in some cases, very mundane yet interesting inventions. Things mm-hmm. like chopsticks or uh, less mundane things like the x-ray machine. But today, we wanted to talk about a, an invention that sort of exists throughout its entire lifetime at the crossroads of myth and legend and reality. Yeah, this is a curious one. This is this is. Uh, perhaps our first uh, topic where we, we cannot point at the thing and say, here it is. Here is the here is the invention. Let us explore its history. Now, we all know today, I mean, it, we are at a point where maybe we do risk uh, the topic becoming somewhat mundane because everybody knows about lasers now. You know, this is the 21st century. Laser research is going on all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and certainly as we'll explore a little bit, there, there have been large-scale military projects that have looked at the use of uh, – of, of, of particle and beam and, and laser technology mm-hmm. to uh, to inflict damage to but, but we have not reached the point of the the classic sci-fi death ray we haven't reached the point where a a, a, a beam-based weapon is targeting a city or shooting, a, you know, an airplane out of the sky or being, uh, you know, uh, used in bank robberies by uh, high-tech bandits, that sort of thing. At least not on a large scale. And right. there might be some very good reasons for that. Uh, not just that, like, we don't have the technology to do it, but maybe because, you know, there are easier ways to accomplish the same goal. Right. Uh, but, yeah, so we're going to be talking about death rays. And this turned out, I think, to be a much more interesting and culturally relevant topic than I would have expected because I want to start positing something, essentially that what people have in mind when they talk about a death ray, what we often have in mind is like a directed energy weapon of some kind, Mm -hmm. you know, something that shoots a beam of electromagnetic radiation or some other kind of uh, directed energy at a target to cause it damage or disable it somehow. I I would posit that essentially this idea grows out of the concept of a magic wand. (laughs) That's funny because uh, at the same time, I feel like the sci-fi vision of the uh, the blaster and the the phaser and these various uh, weapons they end up informing the way that magic wands are utilized in the Harry Potter films. Oh yeah, especially the latter uh, the latter films where where they're having these large scale wand battles between uh, the forces of good and the forces of evil. And it's you know it's it's wonderful, but if you if you look at it. You can see, you can easily see this is essentially a laser battle. This these are blasters. Yeah, and if you go back into mythology, there are all kinds of concepts of uh, like a weapon that can kill at a distance without a projectile. Right, that's essentially what we're talking about. You can hit somebody from far away without actually throwing anything. Right. Yeah. So some of the the classic examples, and certainly we we can't cover them all here, but you can think of say the Medusa, the Gorgon's gaze, right, or 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 that of the mythic basilisk, the mm-hmm. idea that it can 
can kill or, or petrify uh, anybody who looks upon it. It's almost the idea of a, uh, a visible light death ray, like a, like a visible light frequency image that could kill you or harm you. Right. Uh, of course, we always have to remember that the sun is the original death ray, right? <laughs> it <laughs> right. just works at – it usually works at a slower pace. Uh-huh. But but yeah, all these are kind of – they're getting into the idea of either a visible beam or very often unseen energy, uh, unseen death that is projected. Now, of course, fire-breathing monsters are common to all kinds of fiction. But I would almost say – could you say that actually a fire-breathing dragon is giving it's, – it's a more conventional projectile yeah. because fire is like – you know, it's a chemical reaction of matter. It's heated gas and stuff like that. Uh, so if you're breathing fire on something, it's that's sort of a kind of projectile. It was, you know, even if it's not scientifically understood by uh, by, by ancient peoples, like fire is. I mean, it's such a part of human life, right? Mm. It's it's it's. it's 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 not this this mysterious property that we see in these these in these other myths we're discussing and in the sci-fi vision of the of the blaster or the death ray. Now, in a recent episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we devoted two episodes to the Ark of the Covenant and its alleged powers of destruction. Now, I can't remember. Did anybody ever suggest that the Ark like shot laser beams or death rays? Um, well, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas <laughs> did yeah. uh, because I think that, that's that's where you get that. That's where I'm getting that. But uh, but certainly in some of the myths, you know, as we just explored in that episode, something seems to be uh, emitted by the Ark. And I get, I didn't we don't I don't think we ran across anybody saying that there were rays of death emitted from the ark, but you know you could make that argument, I guess. Now, I think I recall that the main issues discussed in like the legends that appear in the Bible are like fire coming out of it at people mm-hmm. or it just inflicting medical misery on people with right. plagues of emeralds and mice. Now, one of my favorite uh, tales of some sort of a, a deadly beam uh, actually comes to us from Irish mythology. I oh. remember reading about this one as a, as a kid and just being blown away by it. Now I, tell me. Well, it's the uh, the story of the Fomorian king, Balor. He had uh, but a single eye in the center of his head. Uh, and a, just a single glance from this eye would destroy any mortal. Whoa. And he gained this power by by peering into a druid's cauldron as a child. Now, even as a child, he apparently only had one eye. Uh, <laughs> but by gazing into the cauldron, all of the venomous vapor in the druid's cauldron infected his eye and uh, caused it to grow and grow in its power. Now, fortunately for the mortal world, his eyelid grew so large that eventually four men had to to raise it up uh, by the use of a crossbeam in order to deploy his deadly gaze in battle. So he was like... Like a walking piece of, uh, 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 you know, of uh, like like a cannon, you know. Like he has to be. I, I like to imagine he has to be kind of rolled out on a cart, and then people have to raise up the eyebrow, and then anything within uh, range just dies instantly. This sounds like the actual inspiration for Cyclops in the X Men. Yeah, it's it's basically Cyclops, except uh, I don't know that there's an actual like visible beam that mm-hmm. comes out, right? So there's a there's a fabulous tale. Uh, of how the the hero Lug the Longhanded, who actually is Balor. <laughs> Love Lug the Longhanded. Yeah, yeah, he's got long hands. He's actually Balor's own grandson who's prophesized to one day slay his grandfather. Okay. So uh, he has to go up against Balor, of course. It's mm-hmm. fated. Uh, but he does so by, first of all, staying out of the eye's range until the eyelid becomes so wary that it just has to close. And then he moves in and he waits till the split second when Balor's eye is 
open just enough for him to uh, uh, send a stone through with his slingshot, but not wide enough that the full awful power of the gaze is unleashed. Mm. And so he lets fly the stone from his slingshot and he sends it through the eye, back through Balor's brain, out the back of his head, and such is the force of this uh, this slingshot missile that it then kills 27 warriors standing behind Balor. Going back to the uh, Indiana Jones analogy, it's like when he uses that German pistol and it shoots through like four Nazis. Exactly, yeah. It's it's the same scenario. Uh, (laughs) So it kills Balor, takes out the eye, 27 soldiers lined up behind him. I thought you were going to say that Lug the Longhanded was the first hero of mythology to defeat the monster by using the technology of pepper spray. (laughs) Well, you know, he's got that big lid, so I guess he's kind of protected from it. Right, but that would keep it closed, right? So you pepper spray Balor, and then he tears up. He can't open his eye to look at you with the the death ray, so you're – you know, you can – basically have free reign. Well, I guess it comes down to to, to range, though. Uh, What has greater range, uh, a slingshot or pepper spray? I think the slingshot probably (laughs) gave him the advantage. Because remember, he has to stay out of range, and then he has to to rush up, and he only has that split second uh, to get the stone through before the, the eye is open all the way, and then he's toast. Now, another form of ancient death ray that's often been reported is, uh, I would say, again, at the crossroads. The the ones we've been talking about so far are clearly myth. You know, Mm -hmm. these are obviously myth and legend. The next one is more at this crossroads of of legend and reality. We don't know to what extent this story is true, but it has been reported as if it were true. And this is the story of the death ray of Archimedes. That's right. Uh, Archimedes, uh, refresher for everyone, who is a Greek polymath who lived in the city-state of Syracuse. And uh, he was, of course, an inventor as well. If you're a Greek polymath, you're, you're probably inventing stuff. He's you know? credited with all kinds of interesting discoveries like the, the water screw, you know, an efficient method for raising water by turning a screw through a pipe. Right. And then uh, he's also accredited with Archimedes' principle. Uh, this is uh, from, for instance, in On Floating Bodies from 2050. Any object wholly or partially immersed in a fluid is buoyed up by the force equal to the weight of the fluid displaced by the object. Yeah. The old story, of course, is that he was taking a bath, and then when he realizes what's happening, how he's displacing the water, he jumps out of the bath and, and yells, "What was it? Uh, Eureka's castle? <laughs> Eureka? Uh, yeah." That's where we get the word. Eureka. Does that phrase actually mean something? I'm sure it does. Uh, you know, I, I've never actually looked into it. Oh, I just looked it up. It means I found it. That's ah, a little, well, there you go. little disappointing. I, I always just think of Eureka Alerts, which is the, the website that distributes uh, press releases on upcoming science papers. Yeah. Which perhaps Archimedes had access to somehow. That's, that's the true miracle. <laughs> Through his time machine? Through his time machine, he was able to access Eureka Alerts. And boy, was he ever breaking embargo on those releases, <laughs> I tell you. By thousands of years. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so we know that uh, Archimedes, he was he, he wrote on geometry and mathematics and, you know, these kind of principles. But uh, but let's talk about his his supposed technological creations. Right. Yeah. So he's he, he's, he lives in Syracuse, uh, again, the, the, the Greek uh, city state. And of course, he was called upon to build weapons from time to time. So he designed catapults. He's said to have created the claw of Archimedes, which would allegedly grab warships out of the water and lift them up, kind of a, a war crane. Uh-huh. Um, I think I think this is also 
in dispute whether that actually happened. Right. Yeah. Uh, but if it did, it would yeah it would essentially be like the claw machine at mm. the you know at the at, at the, the the arcade that that grabs the stuffed animals. Except he would be using it to grab ships uh, during a siege. Yeah. But so we get to this idea of the death ray that Archimedes supposedly built. Uh, it's not again known whether he really built such a thing or even if it would have been possible with the materials and conditions that uh, Archimedes would have been working with. But some ancient chroniclers report that during the siege of Syracuse, Archimedes burned enemy ships in the water and that he did this with the use of some kind of glass or mirror. Yeah, this would have been 212 BCE. And uh, the, the, the weird thing, of course, is that nobody was immediately writing about it, or at least those writings haven't survived. We mainly know about it from the likes of Galen uh, writing about it 350 years afterwards. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, there, there's absolutely no certainty that this is anything other than a story. It's often dismissed as myth, but numerous attempts have been made to produce this sort of result via mirrors, yeah. looking into the idea, well, could you do it? Could you get enough mirrors? Could you use them to redirect and focus uh, the rays of the sun in with such intensity that you could uh, you could set a ship ablaze? It would essentially be the the magnifying glass on the ant effect, right? Except it would use tons of of polished uh, metal implements or mirrors of some kind of reflective glass to shine the sunlight back onto a to a ship in a very focused way, maybe involving hundreds of these things. And uh, there have been, like you said, a lot of attempts to try to do this. There was like a Mythbusters episode about it. and Yeah, I think uh, they tried it like three different times uh-huh. and they, they failed to produce results. But other attempts have been more successful. Mm-hmm. There was a 2005 MIT experiment that used 127 mirrors to position an X on a wooden target ship, a ship that was, uh, we should point out, was not in the water, but was just like setting out in a parking lot or something. It was a prop ship. Yeah. They found that they used 10 minutes to aim the mirrors, resulting in almost immediate smoke. And then via continuous adjustment of of the mirrors to refine focus, they managed to produce smoke and fire. So they concluded that such a method was at least feasible. Now, there was an an earlier experiment uh, from 1973, a Greek experiment that used 70 different uh, mirrors, each one about five by three feet. And they use them in the hands of soldiers to concentrate uh, the beams of light uh, to set a floating rowboat ablaze, this opposed to a stationary test boat, as in that uh, MIT experiment. And this, of course, is key because you have, you'd have to concentrate you have to concentrate your sunlight on that object. And even during calm weather, a ship is going to be bobbing. Now, another thing is to consider the distance of a ship that's going to be bobbing in the water, mm-hmm. because the farther away it is the harder it's going to be to focus all your mirrors in the same place. I mean, imagine like trying to use a huge magnifying glass on an ant from like hundreds of feet away. Yeah. Now, in the the writings about Archimedes' death ray, generally they were attributed to to being within bow and arrow range. Mm -hmm. And in ancient Greece, that would be somewhere between 200 to 1,000 feet or 60.96 to 304.8 meters. Now, if you think about that, then you might have to wonder like, well, wait a minute. If they were trying to set ships on fire, why didn't they just like shoot flaming arrows? Yeah. This is yeah, – there are a number of problems with this. So <laughs> there's the focusing. There's the fact that the ship is bobbing. There's, there's the, the fact that nobody's writing about the success of this thing. I, I think back to our Stuff to Blow Your Mind episode on Greek fire, yeah. which certainly made an impression, was a terror weapon, was a, a, was a state secret mm-hmm. uh, and was effective. And people, people spoke of it in, in horror. 
but not so uh, with the death ray. Uh, people are not talking about it to like 350 years after the fact that we know of. My take on this, based on what I've been reading, is that this sounds exactly like the kind of thing that somebody like Archimedes might have at least tried to do during a long siege. There's a lot of setting around. There's probably a lot. You imagined a mind like that of Archimedes. He's probably thinking, well, what could we do? Could we, you know, we could shoot some more uh, arrows. We could fire up the catapult again. What if I could focus the rays of the sun? That's interesting. So, like, you could recast this not as a defensive tactic, but as an experiment. He, yeah. he had the opportunity to try it out, so why not try it? Right, and then uh, during a siege, you know, it, it, hopefully he does catch the enemy ships on fire. You know, yeah. and uh, I can imagine that that uh, the the uh, the military would say, "Oh, sure, yeah, have, take as many soldiers as you want." They're just sitting around waiting for something to happen anyway. And if you can set the the Roman ships on fire, go for it. I guess if this did happen in any form at all, we don't know how many attempts it took for it to be successful. Right. You know, I mean, maybe it was a situation where, hey, produced a little smoke and then they figured it out. Maybe they actually caught a ship on fire. But again, it seems like if it had really been effective, it would have become a standard weapon of war and it did not. Yeah. And now this concept is basically in the ballpark of what is actually meant when people talk about modern technological visions of death rays, right? It's some kind of beam or directed energy weapon that causes physical damage or disables machines at a distance. Now, machines can't die, though. So why are we still calling it a, de a death ray? It just sounds sexier than um, uh, what uh, uh, machine malfunction ray. I want to be very clear. I did not decide to call these things <laughs> death rays. Death ray is a term of art in the death ray mm. industry and in the death ray marketing industry. And you will find all throughout history that these items are, in fact, marketed in the press as death rays. So that's – don't put that on me. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into the death rays. We, we've talked about what came before. We've talked about the myth and at least half mythological uh, stories of early death rays, mm -hmm. uh, certainly laying the groundwork for the idea. But at what point then do we see something new in the pursuit of the death ray? Well, I mean, one way of asking that question is where does the desire for a death ray come from? Mm. Like, so we're going to be discussing how newspaper articles and con artists and inventors were constantly gabbing about death rays from, say, the late 1800s until World War II, roughly. Right. Uh, especially at the period between the two world wars, like the 1920s and 30s. That was like death ray fever hot zone. But didn't we already have enough guns and bombs and weapons to satisfy us? Like it, there were plenty of means available to cause destruction, to destroy people and vehicles. Like why were people so obsessed with this idea of a death ray? And so I, I think we should try to explore that a little bit. And that might give us a window into what's going on when we discuss these, these actual reports of what inventors were claiming. Well, some of the answers we're, we're going to get into are definitely more intriguing than this one. But – the, one of the obvious answers that comes to mind is humans cannot create, cannot discover a new technology or develop a new technology without thinking about ways to utilize it in war. That's true. So the, it's just inevitable to a certain extent. We're discovering waves, and then it's uh, the, the question is how can we start killing people with these with these rays? Yeah, around the turn of the twentieth century, like in the eighteen nineties, we mm -hmm. had the discovery of X rays. Yeah, uh, people were discovering all different kinds of ways for energy to propagate wirelessly across distance. Mm -hmm. And yeah, of course, the more we knew about that, it had 
had that sexiness of being a cutting-edge scientific discovery, of course people were thinking like, how can I use this for war? How can we get the international military edge by using what we now know about wireless energy transmission? Yeah, and then later on during the Cold War, we uh, we, off, we also see that the same sort of energy going into things that totally don't shake out, like uh, the, the idea of uh, of remote viewing and various uh, psychic phenomena, right? Exactly, yeah. We, we've discussed on Stuff to Blow Your Mind before how, uh, you know, I, I don't put any stock in the idea of psychic powers as a reality, but psychic research absolutely did take place during the Cold War, uh, definitely on, on the United States side. Mm-hmm. Like, we know about uh, U.S. government-funded psychic research projects. Yeah, it, the idea being if there's something there, then we want to know about it because the, we, because the enemy is going to look into it as well. And you do see a similar energy in the pursuit of the death ray. Absolutely. So here's one thing you might assume. You know that uh, there were all these articles about scientists claiming to have invented a death ray from, say, you know, the late 1800s and really picking up after World War I, going through the 20s and 30s. What, what might have caused that? You might think, oh, the rise of science fiction. Yeah, like that that seems like it would be an obvious answer because we we do see some of that when it comes to space space exploration. We see so many of the advances in rockets, in rocketry uh, during the 20th century are are created by individuals who were inspired by science fiction. Yeah, so that is a totally natural thing to assume might be going on with death rays. But I want to mention uh, a book that I've been reading that was actually – I'd say this is our our best and main source in this episode. It's a book called Death Rays and the Popular Media, 1876 to 1939, A Study of Directed Energy Weapons in Fact, Fiction and Film by William J. Fanning Jr., McFarland Press from 2015. And uh, this book is really interesting. It explores the relationship between sort of popular culture representations of death rays and death rays as existing or as people claim to exist or claim to be working on in the real world. And he makes a very compelling case that the relationship goes exactly the opposite way. So you've got this period of science fiction in the 1920s and 30s known as the ray gun era of science fiction. Ray guns are everywhere. Uh, But he says, in fact, it's not that the newspapers were pulling all this ray gun hype from sci-fi, but that the fictional stories were pulling the ray gun hype from reality, from the newspapers. And that's crazy. I had just always assumed it to be the opposite. As I'll discuss later, like there's a there's a cheapness to the ray gun effect, especially in these old serials. Yes, where you just think, well, that that just, it's a perfect uh, you know cheap fictionalized weapon because you don't have to you don't have to worry about the, the the fact that it doesn't look like there was a gunshot. You don't have to even worry about a fancy beam effect or anything. You mm. don't have to actually discharge a weapon on stage or on set. You just right. go. Uh, pew pew and you're good. I mean it's brilliantly convenient for all kinds of reasons mm-hmm. for you know censorious reasons having to do with not wanting to see blood and all that and for cheapness reasons. Mm-hmm. It's just incredibly uh, useful if you're trying to be an economical creator of science fiction. Yeah. But yeah, there is this other direction in the relationship where it seems that a lot of this sci-fi is – it's kind of like how you know a lot of uh, – there, there's that sort of mild sci-fi, the sci-fi that you might see in like uh, military thr- thriller movies that are not like super – they don't have time machines and stuff like that. They've uh-huh. just got like slightly more advanced than we actually have today weapons and stuff. It's like when there was there were talk of rail guns, and then then you have that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. What was it, Eraser? I think where that prominently features rail guns. I never saw that. Oh, well, it has great rail guns in it. Yeah, 
and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Is that the one I heard of where he at one point shoots an alligator and says, your luggage? I literally only remember the the, the rail guns. <laughs> That's the <laughs> only thing I remember from that movie. But it was, but it, it definitely felt like a similar scenario. If only rail guns had caught on more. I think to a certain extent they did because you started seeing them in video games everywhere around that time as well. Robert, I could talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger all day. Well, we <laughs> we got to get back to the uh, the Ray Gun era. So the Ray Gun era, uh, yeah. So there's this idea that for some reason everybody in the press is really excited about the idea of of death rays. And there's a there's a really interesting cultural and political reason that this kind of thing was popular in the 1920s and 30s. And it had to do with the idea of the next war. Now, we've, you know, explored many times how there was a way in which the First World War was a kind of new and unique terror. Mm-hmm. There had always been horrible wars and, war, you know, war always kills, war is always awful. But the First World War, mainly I think for technological reasons, was was shocking in the kind of terror it presented. That's right. It was a war in which we had these dehumanizing machines. We had yeah. these 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 terrifying chemicals, these chemical agents that were deployed. Uh, we had uh, bombs falling from the sky. It was it was just technology used to just tear humanity apart. Yeah, and and the biggest changes I think that were lingering in the in the consciousness of people who survived the First World War were knowledge of the idea of uh, of air bombing, mm-hmm. air power as a weapon of war. Which, when you think about it now, that seems like you know we all grew up with the idea of an air force being part of a, a nation's military. But this was new at the time. You know, having an air force that could fly planes over your city right. and bomb the civilians in the city it completely reversed the dynamics of war. Now it's saying, okay, the civilians back home are now on the front lines. Yeah. Like, air power introduced an entirely new theater of, of combat, an entirely new layer of strategy. And, and yeah, allowed just anybody living in a, uh, any given city to suddenly be a casualty in, casualty in that war uh, with, without there being a full invasion. Right. People way back home could think – I don't have to go to war to be in danger. I could be in my house and mm-hmm. someone could drop a mustard gas attack on me and my family right. while we're way back home. Uh, and it's because you're basically always within reach of the bomber. The bomber can go anywhere. So Fanning points out that books and articles of the time in the 20s and 30s just would constantly work over these lurid imaginings of what this horrible next war would be like. And it involved these new elements that we, you know, that we had put to use in the First World War, but just at a much more apocalyptic scale. So terror bombings of civilian cities, killing millions with high explosive, with incendiary bombs, with poison gas. Uh, This is a horrible thing to imagine is, you know, just right Right around the corner coming to your city or the city next door. Yeah, I remember seeing uh, an old holiday cartoon actually that depicted uh, talking animals picking up after the last two soldiers uh, shoot each other. In, uh, in 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 this great war, this next war, uh-huh. like this, you know, the, across, it's like a, an, an apocalyptic trench landscape with two gas-masked individuals. So you can it, it provides just a nice flash of what you're talking about here. Yeah, and so th- this is obviously causing intense fear and paranoia around the world. And the idea is, okay, what can we do? to save us from the new technological horror, the bomber, the air power force. And so you had things like anti-aircraft guns. Mm-hmm. You had fighter planes. 
everybody knew basically and everybody agreed that these were insufficient. Even good anti-air defenses would never stop all the bombers headed for your city. The best they could do was provide some deterrent and sort of reduce the bombing force. There was a generally correct sense that the bombers would always get through your defenses. And most military authorities realized that there was no total defense against air power and that the only real defense was the threat of retaliation from the air power of your own. Like the best way to protect your cities from bombing was to just say, well, if you bomb us, we'll bomb you. Like I feel like one of the the, the only way to, to, to perhaps imagine the scenario is to think about the fact that we have that, – that if uh, a foreign force were to show up in orbit over Earth – we would have no defense against them dropping things upon us. And right. I mean literally dropping just heavy objects that would do tremendous damage uh-huh. uh, uh, just, just by virtue of their orbital uh, superiority. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it, that's an analogous scenario. Yeah, it's like what can you do to st- – I mean we could sort of shoot at them but we wouldn't really have much of a defense. Right. You, maybe you shoot one of them, right? But can you, can you bring it all down? Probably not. And likewise, you're, yeah, you're dealing with with multiple bombers. Uh, you're dealing with uh, with with just growing, ever growing air forces uh, from all of these major powers at the time. Exactly. So if you are a well, whether you're a military commander or a civilian, just sitting there and watching this buildup of air power, mm-hmm. this is like okay, you're just watching someone collect the weapons with which to attack the civilians on both sides of whatever war, or on all sides of whatever war comes next. And to a large extent, this was a true prophecy because you look at air combat during the Second World War and it features all of these things. It features uh, bombers that are able to reach pretty far around the world. Uh, You're you're, you're seeing day bombers, night bombers. You're seeing the terror weapons, the the V-1 and the V-2 of of the Germans. And then, of course, uh, at the the end of the war, you're seeing uh, uh, the the atomic bomb as well. So – it was a true prophecy in many respects. Like the the paranoia was real. Yeah, and so the the kind of sci-fi technology of air power that had now become a reality made war a, a brand new kind of hell, even in peacetime. A hell that um, that there was just this constant threat that would fill you with fear, and you could never be safe from it. So people were yearning for the idea of something that could repel the bombers, something that could stop the bombers from getting through. And this, I think, is the void that the death ray really comes in to fill. Ironically, you know, we think of the death ray as like a horrible, you know, it's the weapon the villain has in the mm-hmm. Superman serials or something, you yeah. know. But actually, more often, the death ray was imagined as a, a sort of savior, a hero weapon, a hero defensive weapon that would be be the only thing that you could that you could use to stop the bombers from reaching you and this was how it was often sold by the scientists who were claiming to be working on them or claimed or claiming to have invented them they they would say i've made a death ray and it will make war impossible because everyone now will have defenses against bombers and against air power that will prevent them from being attacked in their homes and this is this is also kind of uh, a, a prophetic in its own way, right? Because this sounds an awful lot like Star Wars. Mm-hmm. You mean not the Star Wars the movie, but the Strategic Defense Initiative? Yes, yeah. The idea that you yeah. could build a, um, a, a a network 
that would 100% protect your nation against incoming uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. Fanning quotes one newspaper that characterized one of the many hyped claims of an invented death ray as the flaming sword from Genesis. Oh, wow. That's so good. But given all of this context, like the fear that is brought on, the quite legitimate fear of, of air power, of bombing, of chemical weapons and, and all that, you can suddenly see why the death ray wasn't just a kind of aesthetic curiosity having to do with like science fiction, that it was a thing that people felt they desperately needed in reality. We've got to have a way to save us from the ravages of enemy air power should the next war break out. Or to prevent the next war from breaking out in the first place. I mean, to go back to the flaming sword uh, uh, thing, it, it's positioning it as as divine intervention. Yeah. Uh, because the, the angel with the sword is preventing Adam and Eve from returning to the garden, essentially from 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 spoiling what should remain pure with their their imperfections. Yeah, and in like say the the British or French press at the time. The equivalent, I think, would have been preventing the return of the Germans in their inevitable war of revenge. Mm -hmm. And those fears would prove correct. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe we should take a break and then when we come back, we can discuss specific claims from people who said in one way or another at one time or another that they had made a death ray. All right, we're back. So we, we've laid the, the groundwork here. There was a desire for the death ray yeah. as, as this kind of holy technological protection. The flaming sword that would prevent the, the terror devil of air power from reaching your cities. Right. And, and again, think back to our episode on x-rays. There are all these discoveries that are taking place about various rays, about, about these previously undetectable properties of the world that can be exploited technologically to do amazing things. Yes. So if you could only create this invisible flaming sword out of the holy power of the cutting edge of technology and science to shoot down those enemy bombers and sort of like build a great energy wall around your civilization to keep it safe from all harm, wouldn't you want to do that? Yeah. And so we see various individuals developing or attempting develop, to develop or claiming to have developed or, <laughs> or to be developing uh, some sort of death ray technology. One great example that goes way back before any of these concerns about bombers or whatever, uh, it goes all the way to the 1870s. Fanning talks about this in his book where there's this guy. I actually looked up some newspaper articles about this guy uh, from, from the New Orleans area in the <laughs> 1870s. Oh, nice. This guy was called Professor James C. Wingard. And in the 1870s, he started claiming claiming that he could harness something called, quote, the nameless force, always capitalized, oh. the nameless force. And it was related to electricity and it would, for instance, incinerate a boat at a distance. I think somebody should create a bar in New Orleans called the nameless force. That would be pretty great. That would be great. And he was like – he was a local celebrity in a way. Like lots of people would come out to watch his demonstrations. There was a point where he incinerated a boat on Lake Pontchartrain at a distance oh, supposedly wow. using a ray that commanded some kind of – whatever this nameless force was. However, he was discovered to be a fraud. Uh, I think this this was – proved conclusive when two people, including one of his assistants, were killed in an 1879 explosion while his assistant was trying to place a mine secretly to blow up a ship that he was claiming to use his nameless force on. 
So this is a great story to start with because we're going to see this pattern continue, uh, maybe not with the, the fatal explosions, but with this question, am I looking at Mr. Wizard or am I looking at a wizard? You know, am I, am I looking at somebody who is definitely demonstrating a scientific property uh-huh. or am I looking at a charlatan? Am I looking at somebody who is essentially a professional stage magician who is creating the effect of a death ray without actually demonstrating the science of it. And one of the things we have to keep in mind as we go forward is it's not always completely either or. Mm. Uh, I think we're going to look at a couple people today who it seems are are some mix of real scientist, real inventor creating real inventions and also hoaxer and charlatan. Like the 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 same person could be both at different times. Right. And and I mean to, to give some of the charlatans credit, I guess, it certainly does take a, a, a certain amount of skill to, to say nothing of nerve to pull these kind of stunts, to make these claims and then to uh, to do what is necessary to to create the effect, even if it you know involves trickery. I mean, what's the difference between a stage magician and like a cult leader and a fraud? It's just like what they call their show. Right. It, it, <laughs> I always think back to the example of the pooping duck, uh-huh. uh, the old uh, automaton uh, machine that had the likeness of a duck and uh, they would demonstrate it by, uh, by feeding it food and then it would it would poop and the idea was that the, the 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 mechanical duck is digesting it wasn't digesting as it turns out food just went one in one end and uh, and some duck poop came out the other end there was no connection between the two right but still it create it involves a certain amount of technological uh, uh, a skill to create a duck that appears to be pooping like that uh, solid trickery is a skill but anyway, Robert, do you want to tell me about the story of one Giulio Ulivi? Yes, uh, Ulivi is a wonderful story, uh, and, and uh, Fanning goes into this story in depth. Uh, so remember those purported in-rays that we discussed in our X-ray episode? Oh, yeah. So after the discovery of X-rays, people just kept ex- expecting to discover more kinds of rays. And in-rays were these rays that lots of people claimed to, ob- to have observed, but then we eventually discovered they just didn't exist. Well, get ready for F-rays. F-rays? Yes. Because uh, uh, in uh, this is what we end up getting. In 1913 and 1914, that's when newspapers began to report on a 33-year-old Italian inventor named Giulio Ulivi. So he claimed to have invented a device that could explode gunpowder at a distance via these invisible F-rays, he called them. Okay. He claimed that you had like a 10-mile range on this technology. But when French General uh, Joseph Joffrey requested greater range, he went ahead and bumped that up to uh, 15 miles. <laughs> okay. And, of course, the thing is uh, Joffrey also wanted to see a demonstration of the technology in action. Mm-hmm. And what followed would become a f- familiar story in the death ray business of the early 20th century. A test that seems engineered like a professional magic trick uh, and some international travel to pitch the tech to different nations. I I think one thing that will emerge as we discuss a few of these examples is the idea of you should always be suspicious of somebody who wants to show you something, but they can only show it to you under extremely specific conditions that they set up. Exactly. And then it's also just crazy to think – to look back and – can you imagine this today? I mean to a certain extent – 
I, I imagine this this does happen, but where someone's like, yeah, hey, uh, French military, I got this new military technology. I'm showing it to the Russians next week. Right. And technically, Italy has first dibs on it, but I'll go ahead and give you a demo. Uh-huh. It's, it's kind of crazy <laughs> to, to, uh, to imagine. But that's that's how it went down. So Joffrey says, Olivi, we got to see a, a, a demonstration of this. So Olivi insists upon using a vessel flying under the British flag. Uh, to conduct this experiment, uh, this test rather, so that the French can't simply take his technology from him. Okay. Which I guess I can I can see where he could make that case. So he ends up uh, acquiring this uh, use of this British uh, private yacht, and then he uh, uses his machine to detonate some submarine mines, 10 of them at 600-yard intervals. And upon request, he also detonates some ammunition and uh, and powder stores inside of a fortress. And according to Fanning, he succeeded in both ventures. Though, as becomes clear with the mines, uh, Ulevi seems to have uh, supplied the explosives. Hmm. But how were these results received by the audience? That's a big question, right? Because it was a demonstration. Apparently, it depends on who you ask. Fanning points out that some accounts said that he made a favorable impressions, while others say that he did not. And at any rate, when the French began to ask technical questions about what they had seen, Ulevi, quote, gave responses not conforming to well-known scientific principles and even seemed not to understand the technological nature of some of the queries. Mm, That's not a good sign. And then he began to contradict himself. And then he started coming up with excuses not to do more demonstrations, Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly when they started bringing up things like, well, what if the French military provides the explosives? What if we prepare the explosives? Or what what if we just conduct this demonstration completely under military supervision? He said no at first. Okay. Now, eventually he caves, but then an interesting thing happens. The apparatus keeps breaking down on him. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. Not working today. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And in this, I'm reminded of the the various con artists. Uh, We've discussed this on Stuff to Blow Your Mind before, whose powers simply don't work in the same room as, say, James Randi's skepticism. Yeah, this is something you you tend to hear from from like psychics and stuff like that a lot when they uh, – have their powers uh, put under scrutiny or under controlled conditions established by a skeptical person, sometimes they will say the presence of skeptical people or the presence of non-believers somehow like makes their powers not work. Right. Uh, I mean, I guess there they might even be suggesting like a, a cause between, you know, like the fact that we've got doubters in the room, it saps my my special powers away. This would just be like, oops, it's a coincidence. It doesn't work this time. But you, you remember it worked that other time. Right. Now, one of the crazy things about this case with Ulevi is, is that uh, I, I read it and I'm thinking, oh, expose this guy. Make, make him do this demonstration under uh, you know, more rigorous supervision. But that they weren't approaching it quite like that. They were not approaching him like James Randi looking to expose the con artist. They, the, the military officers here legitimately wanted this to be real. Oh, yeah. They were, they were invested. And so as it became more and more likely that there might be some sort of – confidence game in play here or some sort of con or uh, deception. It was more disappointment, according to Fanning, than anything because everyone had their hopes up. They thought this might be it. Yeah. So the French deal uh, ends up uh, uh, not going anywhere. After three days of the apparatus not working uh, by coincidence, uh, he ends up leaving France for good and attempts to sell his tech in England. (laughs) And according to Fanning, accounts of— Does he reason that the English are more gullible? 
I don't know. This, I mean, this is a question that comes back to the central nature of the con artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, assuming, and this is, a, again, open for discussion to what extent he is a true con artist. But you see this pattern with the con artist, right? They work the con here, and then they go somewhere else to, to work. And it's easy to say, what is your long-term plan? Right. Like, eventually, aren't you going to run out of marks? Aren't you going to eventually, you know, expose yourself? It's a big world. <laughs> There's a lot of places to go. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it was, a, a, you know, in some respects, a, a bigger world at that time. So he goes to England, and according to Fanning, accounts of what happened with the British are varied. Uh, but what what ended up happening, you ended up with the same pattern, right? More dubious experiments, uh, including the fact that uh, the effect requires some sort of device be placed on the explosives. That I, I certainly from from our standpoint, uh, that's suspicious, right? And it was unclear if the British later even used his supposed F-rays and technology in, in, in one of the attributed experiments involving offshore detonations. But it sounds like the remote detonation of a mine was accomplished. At any rate, Ulivi didn't hook the British and eventually returned home to Italy. Okay. And there, the Italian government, they set him up in Florence, and he continued to impress many people with his experiments and continued to insist on total control over those experiments. Mm. And so he also continued to garner criticism during this time because even though there were plenty of people that were saying, I think this is the real deal, I think he's, he's on to something, look at these, these tremendous demonstrations, others were saying, I don't know, he controls all the experiments. Making a lot of excuses. A lot of excuses. I think he might be a con artist. I think he might be uh, uh, – I, I think maybe this is all made up. There's some sort of trickery involved here. More excuses are made to avoid tests that he can't control himself. And uh, and there, there's, there's even this situation where a seismologist by the name of Padre Guido Alfani comes and says, hey, look, let's, let's just do a simple – uh, 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 demonstration here. I'll, I'll just set up a, 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 some explosives, some gunpowder, and it's three meters away. Use your device to set it off. And it'll, you know, it'll be observed, it'll be controlled. This is a situation where Alfani wanted to believe. He thought that uh, uh, that uh, that uh, that Olivi was onto something, and he yeah. said, "Let's just let's just get rid of the criticism. Let's just go ahead and prove it. What are you doing? Let's just prove it." <laughs> There's one great part of the story where it seems like uh, he tried to leverage his potential military contracts into a marriage to a daughter of a military official. Yeah, yeah. He ended uh, he ended up eloping with the daughter of Italian Navy uh, Admiral uh, Pietro. Of Fornari. Oh, and the daughter, her name was Maria, and he renamed the F rays after her. They became the M rays. Oh, that's right. They did become the M rays later. (laughs) Yes. So uh, around this time as well, the New York Times ran a story that claimed that that uh, they had figured out the trick here, and uh, that was that Ulivi was detonating sea mines by boring a hole in each mine and then stuffing sodium inside, and then placing a small amount of wool, stuffing that into the opening. Oh, okay. So we all know what happens when you get, like, pure sodium wet. It, ign- it ignites. Yeah. And if that, uh, and, and then that, if, if that's touching gunpowder, then that's going to explode, right? right? So what he's done here, according uh, to this New York Times article, was that he created a simple timer. Hmm. So he messes with the mine, the explosive, uh, whatever the, the the thing is they're trying to detonate. Then you just kind of point your beam at it and fiddle around. Right. And there was fiddling. That's the an important thing. He had to make adjustments to the beam, fine-tuning, in order, and also in order to find what he's trying to explode. Mm-hmm. So he, have, he has a general time frame in mind about how long it will take for uh, for the salt water to soak through and reach the sodium. 
uh, that gives him a you know a, a, that gives him a rough time frame, and then he can just fiddle with the controls until the explosion occurs. And sometimes it would take longer for him to find an explosive, uh, uh, this explosive rather than another. So you can imagine him there saying, "Well, I'm still looking for it. I'm still looking for it," and then boom, I found it. Now that could be a good explanation, but Fanning doesn't seem satisfied that 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 gets to everything, right? That's right. Fanning says that it doesn't explain some of the demos, such as that fortress demo, which again the French asked him to do. They said, mm-hmm. "Hey, we there's some explosives here. Blow it up," and and it apparently worked. Uh, also, some of the torpedo detonations that he he did later on. Various publications at the time jumped to his defense, uh, and he actually managed to keep this act up for seemingly the rest of his life. Yeah, um, milking which, that death ray. Yeah, which, again, if he's if he's more on the con artist side, if he's more on the wizard side, uh-huh. then that's, that's very frustrating yeah. to think that he got away with it that long. Uh, on the other hand, if he's got at least a little bit of Mr. Wizard in there, if, if he was on to something and just wasn't able to or willing to, you know, fully demonstrate it mm-hmm. or, or develop it, then I don't know. Well, I mean, we always have to consider the possibility that whatever F-rays are, I mean, he, he may have had some technological apparatus that did something, but it didn't work maybe as well as he wanted it to or as well as he was advertising. Right. So, I mean, there's always the possibility that when somebody's using trickery of this kind, that it's a top-to-bottom total hoax or maybe that they are just uh, – that they're amplifying what they would actually be able to do or making more consistent results by using tricks and lying to people. So perhaps he developed something that worked, say, 25 percent of the time. But then if you're doing a demonstration and trying to sell it and you're, uh, you, you don't have like a really firm moral compass, maybe you go ahead and rig the explosions just to ensure that the demo goes well. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't want this – you don't want it to be like one of these situations where you're you're unveiling your new operating system and you get the screen of death, right? Yeah, and, you know, remote detonation of explosives is not something that would have been like unthinkable at the time. In fact, the guy we're about to talk about also performed similar demonstrations of remote detonation of explosives. And though he later made claims of technology that seemed to not have much basis in fact or contain elements of, of hoaxing – uh, you know, you you could probably remote blow up a mine in the 19-teens. That seems within cutting-edge inventor parameters then. Absolutely. So anyway, I, this, I guess this brings us to maybe the star of this episode, a guy named Harry Grindel Matthews. <laughs> I have to say, every time I read his name, I read it in my mind as Grindelwald. Grindelwald. The, what is that? What is is that like a uh, is that like a Pokemon guy? No, no, he's a, he's an evil wizard in the Harry Potter universe. Okay, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, our, our our guy here though that we're talking about is probably a little more Gilderoy Lockhart. So, <laughs> so Harry Grindel. Ma- well, this will come back because Harry Grindel Matthews. Mm-hmm. He was born in the year eighteen eighty in the village of Winterbourne, Gloucestershire which is in southwest England, and apparently J.K. Rowling, Ah. the author of the Harry Potter books, lived in that same village for part of her childhood. Uh, Wow. All right. Well, maybe there is a direct Grindelwald Grindelwald reference here. Strange dink. So maybe we'll see if there are any more parallels emerging between the two Harrys. 
Anyway, uh, Harry Grendel Matthews, he was an electrical engineer by training. He fought in South Africa in the Second Boer War at the turn of the 20th century. I think he was part of a constabulary unit. And uh, after that, he devoted his life to inventing things, claiming to have invented things, and hyping those claimed inventions. So he has a bunch of supposed inventions uh, credited to him. One of them is a radio telephone, which he claimed could transmit calls wirelessly between ground stations and airplanes. And you can immediately see the military relevance there. Absolutely, able to uh, an ability to communicate with your bombers, your um, your your reconnaissance planes, etc. Yeah. So in 1912, he was actually invited to Buckingham Palace to demonstrate the invention for Queen Mary. Unfortunately, this appointment did not go so well. Some engineers present wanted to look inside his device, and he didn't like this, and he got mad and left. Okay. Suspicious, but inconclusive. He could have just—he could just been very particular about his uh, technology. Right. Uh, he also invented a certain method for producing talking motion pictures, basically a method for playing sound on film. Uh, and Grindel Matthews would later go on to show a sustained interest in working with film and TV. Yeah, if uh, if I remember correctly, the idea is he he used this technology to interview Shackleton. Oh, Ernst Shackleton. Yeah, yeah. For the was it Arctic or Antarctic expedition? Antarctic, the the thing, not Frankenstein. That's a good distinction. Yeah. Uh, he also supposedly invented a light projector which could display images against the night sky or against a large surface like the side of a building. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll come back to that later. And then in December 1915, while World War I was going on, Grendel Matthews performed a demonstration at a pond in London in front of an audience of British admirals and other officials. And this demonstration uh, showed off remote control of some war-relevant machines, including remote control of a model boat, which he could steer around and, and shoot the gun of, and remote detonation of a mine. And strangely, at least to me, the reports uh, from the time indicate that Grendel Matthews controlled his model boat and his explosives not by means of a radio antenna, but by aiming a searchlight at them to control a selenium element. Hmm. And from all accounts I can find, it seems like this demonstration was actually a success. It, 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 as, I can't tell any reason to think that this technology didn't actually work. Grendel Matthews was given a cash award of 25,000 pounds of uh, payment from the government, and he was promised more if he could develop a remote-controlled aerial torpedo, but he never did that. And there was a lot of overlap at this time between the concepts of like a ray weapon and simply the wireless remote control of machines. Like I don't know if you noticed this in the reading, but sometimes these ideas seem to blur together at the time as yeah. if like a remote control car would be this – like something in the same class as ray weapons. I, I thought that was kind of odd, but – well, it, the idea of controlling something at a distance yeah. and and or uh, 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 sending energy to a machine, yeah, or to a, or to a target, either enough to power some sort of a machine or to detonate uh, a bunch of gunpowder. Well, if you go and read these articles from the time about death rays, very often they mention they're like, okay, we could annihilate an army or shoot a whatever, but then they almost always mention or stop the engines of an airplane. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that goes right back to the main motivation, like the kind of next war paranoia that's uh, that's motivating these hopes for a death ray, the idea that they could stop bombers from reaching your cities. There's this overlap between it as a just direct destructive physical weapon and something that could exert a power or control mechanism from a distance, especially over engines and motors. 
and and it also helps emphasize that despite the name, the the death ray is not always expected to just kill. Though maybe maybe you could consider that as uh, killing an engine or killing a machine. But anyway, Grendel Matthews received his greatest fame by far when, in 1923 and 1924, he started to announce his creation of a wireless means of of beaming energy at a distance sufficient to take down aircraft. And this was the birth of the Grendel Matthews death ray. And I want to be clear again, that's not our retroactive appellation. That's (laughs) what he called it, though he later claimed that he found the term inaccurate. But he, he authorized calling it that as evidenced by a film that he had made to promote the device. Maybe we should take a break and then we come back to a film review. All right, we're back. So, 1924, the death ray. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Harry, Harry Grindel Matthews' own promotional film on his death ray called The Death Ray. We will include a link to uh, to the YouTube upload of this uh, this very film. Mm-hmm. It's definitely worth viewing because it is it is weird and uh, and and hilarious. Yeah, it's, so it's directed by a guy named Gaston Courbet, who otherwise he was a French director. Otherwise, seems to have specialized in short, sort of locale documentaries, mm-hmm. such as A Run Round Godstone and Through Cheddar Gorge. <laughs> but later, he went on to make early science fiction pictures called things like The Fugitive Futurist, which is about a down on his luck gambler who is approached by an inventor with a machine that can predict the future. Oh, I'm, I'm intrigued. It's a good sell. I think he essentially became known for being a director who could do like special effects, mm-hmm. you know, that he could do like a, a trick photography. Which in retrospect makes this very suspicious as a film that is supposed to be demonstrating a new technology. Yes. Uh, but The Death Ray, it bills itself as a nonfiction documentary, quote, a picturization of some of the present and future possibilities of a great scientific discovery. Uh, the the funny thing about the, the the YouTube riff of it that we were listening to anyway, it has just this delightful uh, soundtrack. This yeah. just sort of typical uh, old timey silent movie music going on in the background. Yeah, it's the steamboat itchy piano music. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the the film also it's I don't know it's not shy about what it claims. Mm-hmm. Grendel Matthews quotes himself in it. There's this quote, within 15 years, the machine gun will only be found in museums. <laughs> Why? Because, quote, the Grendel Matthews death ray in the future may control the destiny of the world. <laughs> well, so how does the death ray work? You hope the film will show you. Instead, the film makes you wait. First, it tells you about Grendel Matthews' other inventions and achievements like the light-controlled boat. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of promotional videos in that respect. You know, it like really drives home how brilliant this guy is with frequent shots. I think it's the same shot because, you know, it's expensive to shoot, right, especially at the time. It's a shot of Grendel Matthews at his desk, like sort of pretending to write something. <laughs> pretending to work, yeah. And then stopping as if an idea has seized him and he stares off into the middle distance to think about it. <laughs> There's another part where, yeah, that that part is great. And then it goes to Grendel Matthews getting on a plane to come to France to make the film that you're currently watching. And it tells you that's what you're seeing. And I think all movies should have this. Like the next Avengers movie should start with the producer getting on a plane to go have a meeting to make the movie you're about to see. <laughs> there's a, there's also the, – of course, the, the key to this is the, the first scene where they're actually going to demonstrate – 
this technology. Yes. Uh, so they get to his lab, HGM in his lab, with a bunch of assistants showing the death ray at work. And this scene is wonderful because first you see two men that are sort of, uh, you know, messing around with the death ray, getting ready to use it. And then two other guys just come strolling into the room in front of the death ray. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, they're just straight downrange of it. Yeah. No, no safety protocols at all, which I guess wouldn't be that unbelievable at the time. Yeah. But still, it's, it's kind of hilarious in this film. Well, he did later claim that he had, like, been injured by his own inventions. He claimed to have lost sight in one eye by doing experiments with the death ray. Mm. But but as we discussed in our ex- – we discussed a similar like real cases of uh, injuries occurring in, uh, in X-ray with X-ray technology. Yeah. So it's very believable that he could have – I mean, yes, he could have hurt himself messing around with technology that he understood or even halfway understood. But he could have also just been inspired by these tales of real scientists um, suffering uh, you know, radiation-related injuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after that, there there are two main demonstrations. They use the ray to remotely illuminate an electric light. Mm-hmm. Then they use the ray to blow up a pile of gunpowder at a distance. But how does it work? The most the movie tells you is, quote, the general principle of the death ray is that the object is first located by the electrical beam, which forms a path through which the controlled electrical energy is transmitted. Doesn't get much more specific than that. Hmm. Um and then they take it outside and they, they just shows them sort of working it outside and it flashes a few title cards at you with a little more, uh, you know, some vague language about electricity. Yeah, and how it's like porcelain housing and they have this sort of larger scale sort of anti-aircraft looking version of it. Yeah, and then it ends with what? It like immediately cuts to – Like a burning city or burning building? Yeah. As if, as if he has just demonstrated its awful force. Uh, by taking out, say, an, an entire factory or something. Yes, it looks as if they're implying that he has demonstrated the use of the death ray on a city in France. It seems to suggest that. It isn't clear. Also, I think it's funny that the film, it repeats this special phrase, uh, both words capitalized, illuminate or burn. And they're capitalized and italicized. So it looks like this was supposed to become the trademark slogan of the death ray uh, where, you know, you'd like see the ad for it in Look Magazine and it'll be – it's like 11 herbs and spices or taste the (laughs) rainbow, illuminate or burn. Well, you know, I guess – I mean, it does. It does get to the the fact that any like new technology is going to be able to you're going to be able to illuminate or burn with it, right? You're uh-huh. going to be able to uh, to hurt and use it as a, an instrument of war or do something <laughs> beneficial, right? Yeah, that's true. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's death ray. I guess this is kind of a tangent, but the film here makes me think in an even broader way about terrifying, unfamiliar technologies of war in the 1920s and 30s. Not just the apocalyptic new technological threat of aerial bombing, but of information warfare. Because a film like this could easily be used as a form of high-tech propaganda at the time. Oh, yeah. It, it reeks of propaganda. It's just personal propaganda. Yes. Like at a time when people – I mean I don't know honestly how wary and how savvy people were about what they were watching in films at the time. Mm. But I wonder 
if this was at a time when people were not used to films and were not used to special effects and were not used to being skeptical about the potentially misleading powers of editing, like if that is the case, if people were less skeptical about that kind of thing back then, would an audience necessarily understand that a film was tricking them if it just showed them a thing looking like a ray gun and then immediately cut to footage of a city on fire? Or would you be more sort of naturally, gullibly just led to believe that, that must be what the ray gun did? I would I would love to explore this particular topic in more detail when yeah. we, we can come back and discuss the invention of uh, the motion picture. Yes. Because uh, I think about this a lot watching films with with my son, who's, who's six, mm-hmm. and and certainly at an age where he, you know, he understands the, you know, the complexity of things a lot more. But at the same time, there's so much about filmmaking he doesn't know. There's a way, there's some, there's a way of watching a film as a child that you just can't do when you're older, when you know how movies are made, you know? The or gate least, is wide open. Yeah. You just, you just accept it. Like he he can watch a film with the level of immersion that is so very rare that for me as an adult, like I mm. have to just be totally blown away or sucked in by a film to lose myself and forget that I'm watching a film. But for him, it's more, it's more like the default. Um, and, and certainly you hear stories about, yeah, people watching films during the silent film area, some of these early films say footage of a train barreling toward the camera yeah. and being freaked out by it. Or because, an outlaw pointing his gun at the camera. Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and so I would say it's possible that the same way our cities were unprepared for air bombers and mustard gas, our the, the people of the time were maybe unprepared for the psychological warfare potential of the cinema, of film editing and special effects trickery. And of course, we don't need to just speculate about this. I mean, at least in one way, we know the the war motivating power of of uh, film as a as a propaganda delivery system. And think about the use of cinema in Germany as a weapon to oh, yeah. seed and cultivate the prejudices of the people, like spreading anti-Semitism, spreading other forms of racism, promoting this sense of authoritarian patriotism. And uh, you can easily see how like the emerging art and technology of film could be a powerful weapon also of deterrence against a potential enemy. If you're showing your enemies a film that uh, that is supposedly showing off some weapon you have, but using movie magic to create the illusion that your military technology is unstoppable uh, and that it might be useless to fight against you. In fact, you know what? This reminds me of uh, mentioning psychic research again, mm-hmm. like the idea of that that Russian uh, that Russian video from, I guess it was the 60s or the 70s, I don't quite recall, of the girl who could like stop a frog's heart with her mind, supposedly. Oh, yes. And the question is, so, the, the, you know, Russian state TV at the time produced this video. And the question is, were they producing a, a video that they thought was of a real psychic power that they could use for warfare? Or was it an intentional hoax designed to trick the Russian people into thinking their government had this power? Hmm. Or was it a hoax designed to trick the, their enemies abroad into thinking they had this power and thus to you know become scared and waste resources uh, studying psychic research on their own? Well, we've seen even today, though, that if another nation produces a, a video or has some sort of a press conference about some new military technology that they have or claim to have, mm. it's going to make headlines in rival nations. Yeah. We've seen that with uh, 
North Korean, um, uh, you know, bad CGI of, of missiles taking out North America. Uh-huh. We've seen that with uh, uh, releases from the Russian government of the of, of various uh, uh, new weapon systems that have uh, have been uh, at least claimed to have been developed. Yeah. So, yeah, the the film is a powerful thing. Propaganda is a powerful thing. But let's get back to Grindelwald or uh, Grindel <laughs> Matthews, rather. <laughs> Right. So uh, beginning in 1923 and 24, Grindelwald Matthews, he was all over the place. He was hyping this death ray and sometimes performing demonstrations in which this death ray would be used to do things like stop a motorcycle engine at a distance of several yards or turn on an electric lamp at a distance or supposedly sometimes even kill a living target such as a mouse. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, the press ate it up. You know, newspapers and magazines all around the world published these articles on Grindel Matthews and his startling discovery of the death ray that would, you know, make war impossible. Uh, often in the context of this savior technology, right? It would prevent the next war. And HGM attracted the attention of potential private investors. He attracted the attention of governments. Unfortunately, I think there are a lot of notes of the Olivi syndrome here. There are repeated mixed reports about the success of his demonstrations. Uh, Grendel Matthews would sometimes refuse to – or not sometimes, pretty much always refuse to divulge technical specifics about how his death ray worked. And he would refuse to perform additional demonstrations under new conditions. So, you know, that makes you wonder. Yeah. There is no try it before you buy it. <laughs> right. Uh, so here's my take. I, th- I think it's certain that Grindel Matthews' death ray couldn't do all of the amazing things he was claiming, like shooting airplanes out of the sky or burning cities. But it's not clear to me whether the death ray was a complete and total hoax top to bottom or whether it did something just far less impressive than had been promised. And one does have to wonder, you know, getting back to that idea that it's not necessarily just wizard or Mr. Wizard. It's not necessarily scientist or con artist. Yeah. But there being room for this middle area. Yeah. And I, I keep thinking as we've been recording this, I keep thinking about the fact that there is a world war going on in the background of, of all this and or the aftermath of, the, of a world war. Yeah, this would have been the aftermath. But yeah. yeah but that's what every, everybody had in mind. So you have this tremendously traumatic experience that everyone has 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 survived or barely survived uh, that is informing this. And you have to uh, – it, like it's easy to, to – to, to Put yourselves in his shoes. Yeah. So I can't help but wonder to what extent that trauma affects him as well, if, if that's playing into his decision or at least his uh, – the series of decisions that lead to this – perhaps this space between um, uh, scientific endeavor and just uh, uh, a, a pure con job. Another way you can think about it is imagine the ways that – you know, people writing grant proposals mm-hmm. for research projects very, very often overhype what they're what they're going to discover. Right? Right. You know, this is you know they're not necessarily lying; they're just offering a best case scenario for what their discovery could yield. You know, yeah. Like uh, somebody working on studying, I don't know, the, the movements of snakes in water might say this could potentially you know lead to the creation of new robots that could save lives. And you know what I oh, mean? Oh yeah, yeah. It's my favorite. Part of coming back to Eureka, it's one of my favorite yeah. part of any Eureka Alert uh, press release. 
is that you're going to get down to that part where they say – they just speculate loosely on what this might do in the future. Right. And so it's not it's not that they're lying, but they are, they are trying to like offer some enticing cherry to people with money mm-hmm. who might be able to fund their research, which the people doing the research think is valuable for maybe all kinds of reasons. Yeah. Or the science writer who picks up on it and maybe they're bored with the release until yeah. you mention, hey, it could one day lead to uh, – talking robots or, you know, curing the sick. Yeah, X, Y, or Z. And in many cases, maybe it could actually lead to something like that. But it's a, you know, it's a small incremental step. And you've mm-hmm. got to remind people of what the potential big picture is. You, you wonder if some people at the time were actually not creating death rays that could make war obsolete. They were actually creating something very modest. But they were thinking, OK, this is a step in the right direction. And in order to get the funding I need to keep working on this or to get it in the hands of people who could look at it and understand what's going on, uh, I need to overhype it a little bit. Well, and not only that, like I need to overhype it to help save the world. To yeah. come back to that idea that this would be the burning sword that would save the world from the next great war that that would surely do us all in. Yeah. No, but then again, I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying I think we know that this is the case about Ulevi or Grendel Matthews mm-hmm. or any of these guys. I mean, they might have been just like complete thieves. I mean, right. We yeah. don't know. Uh, but uh, but if there really was anything to it, it seems like the most likely explanation, according to skeptical experts at the time, was that the ray created some kind of beam path through the air that would be a conductor for electricity. And uh, so one explanation along these lines was that speaking to the New York Times, I think this was in 1924, a Dr. Alfred N. Goldsmith an electrical engineering professor at the College of the City of New York and the chief radio broadcasting engineer of the Radio Corporation of America, he hypothesized that the death ray worked by shooting a beam of ultraviolet light, which was known at the time to ionize the air. And then in turn, that would create a tunnel of ionized air that would serve as a kind of wire for conducting electricity to the target. And this would this would essentially create a kind of artificial lightning. Uh, now, this take might be too generous, but it's interesting. Like in the modern world, there are actually devices that have been advertised as working kind of like this. One example would be There were reports in 2012 of a U.S. military research project called the Laser-Induced Plasma Channel, or LIPC, uh, which instead of a beam of ultraviolet light uses a laser, but it's the same principle. You send a laser pulse directed through the air, and that creates a channel of ionized air molecules, meaning the air molecules are stripped of their electrons, uh, so they become a plasma. And this plasma conducts electricity very well, while the intact air uh, particles all around it do not conduct electricity well, and they form an insulator. So you've got this tunnel of ionized gas created by the laser that can supposedly be used to conduct a bolt of electricity like lightning to a target, Hmm. say a bunch of explosive ordnance. But the fact that this kind of research uh, is purported to exist today should not make us conclude that Grindel Matthews could or did actually achieve something similar. And his flakiness and secretiveness about the device, especially coupled uh, with that horrible movie, it all makes (laughs) me suspicious, right? Yeah. But of course, we're not the only ones who are suspicious. We're not the only ones who were suspicious. No, there was a ton of skeptical Grindel Matthews backlash at the time with publications like Scientific American basically mocking him and dismantling his claims, uh, saying, you know, what he was claiming was impossible. But then there were also a lot of people who championed this supposed invention. He got a ton of press coverage. Uh, and his claims did not just find a sympathetic ear with the press and much of the public. Some actual leaders, too, really took notice. Uh, Robert, 
Can you do a Winston Churchill voice? I was actually listening to Winston Churchill earlier this morning, so maybe I can. Let's see. So in an April 1924 letter to one of his science advisors, quoted in Fanning's book, Winston Churchill wrote the following. I wish you would make inquiries about the man who is said to have discovered a ray which will kill at a certain distance. I meet people who say that it can actually be seen to kill mice, etc. It may all be a hoax, but my experience has been not to take no for an answer. <laughs> you know, I don't actually know what Winston Churchill's voice sounds what? like at the moment. I, I mean, mean, I've heard him before. I can't remember it. So whatever that was, that was great. There's a track by this uh, this artist I, I love uh, recorded under the name Wax Factor. Uh -huh. uh, and now he, I think he uses the moniker Pete Sasquatch right now. But uh, <laughs> he had this great track um, that utilizes the sample from Winston Churchill talking about uh, uh, just, uh, uh, you know, about how, how nothing can stop the Allied response. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, it's wonderful. But, oh, was uh, it the We Will Fight Them on the Beaches speech? Um, I'm not sure if it's from that, that, that clip that is not utilized in the song, Okay, but, uh, it is from, it might be from that same speech. I'm a little uh, shaky on which speech it's actually from. Well, anyway, Churchill, he wanted to get in on the death ray. He's yeah. like, if there's death ray to be had, England must have it. And, and certainly he's, this guy, he's, he's talking about, he's talking about a guy who's continuing to show up in the news. Yeah. You know, so it's, uh, it's, it's kind of like the situation with the Levy. Like so, somebody is going to say, Hey, well, let's find out. Just prove it. Just find out. This guy, they, nobody, everybody, they won't shut up about this, this beam uh, technology that he has. Let's get to the bottom of it. And apparently, HGM's uh, research was at least once brought up for debate in the British Parliament uh, huh. with members of the House of Commons asking the Undersecretary for Air about updates on the status of the government's potential relationship with Grendel Matthews and his ray. And uh, funny enough, whether or not anybody actually had anything like a working death ray at the time, all the major governments started piping up. Like in 1924, the British and the French governments were like, Sh uh, we've already got a death ray. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a German official told the Chicago Tribune in that year that Germany already had a battery of rays that would, quote, spread a curtain of death like the gas clouds of the recent war. Such a cheery time. Yeah. And then soon after, Russia also said, oh, they were like, we've got a death ray too. <laughs> uh, one story in an Australian newspaper featured claims of a Russian ray weapon that could be used to melt lead or light cigarettes. That's, it just all depends on where you adjust the knob to, right? I guess so. But yeah, anyway, so the story of Grendel Matthews is interesting because we ultimately don't know. I mean, clearly he was promising things that he could not deliver. Mm -hmm. Uh, like we said, we don't know if it's all hoax or just mostly hoax or partially hoax or what. Uh, but obviously his his weapons were never put into use. They never became real uh, real death rays used by any of these uh, the Allied forces. But he stayed in the press for you know he kept showing up in articles by sympathetic journalists and stuff for years and years. And even by the time it became clear that nothing was going to really come of the death ray, yeah, uh, he was still showing up. He was still inventing things or or you know trying to find some spin on the technology and at least get his name out there. I was reading a 2009 Telegraph article titled "Neglected Edwardian Inventor Made 1920s Death Ray," <laughs> and uh, they pointed out that uh, yeah Warner Brothers employed him uh, briefly in America to develop his talking picture process. 
process. This is the one he used to film uh, 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 Ernest Shackleton in 1921. Mm -hmm. Worth noting and stressing that he was not the only or the first inventor to pull off this effect. I think at some point he may have claimed he was the first. Yes, I think think it's claimed in that video, actually, among other things. We didn't even get into all the claims that are made in that uh, that short film. Oh, you mean in The Death Ray? Yeah, The Death Ray. Uh, Not really a video, but short film, yes. so he comes back from America from working for Warner Brothers, and in the 1930s, he uh, he starts uh, uh, promoting the sky projector invention that you touched on earlier. Uh, and he even uh, successfully cast the words Happy Christmas and a clock face into the clouds over Hampstead, England. Uh, this is from uh, uh, the Telegraph uh, article. By, it's by Stephen Adams. He says, quote, while in America, he used film lighting equipment to create a high-powered light projector thought by some to be the inspiration for the bat signal in the Batman cartoons. No way. Yeah. So Did Bob Kane say that or whoever? I don't know if it's Thought Kane. by some. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, the, the, the time frame would more or less work out, I guess. Mm-hmm. So he's projecting things into the sky, and then we kind of get Batman. It's curious how all these – these are connections. This is exactly what James Burke was talking about. You know, Robert, I think we're going to have to call it there for the day. But the death ray has become such a uh, richer and more interesting subject than I would have even imagined. I think we got a whole other episode worth of interesting death ray history and thoughts in us. Yeah, we didn't even get into Tesla. We're going to have to save that for the next episode. Please join us again next time for more Death Ray goodness. In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Invention, head on over to inventionpod.com. Uh, you can also just find Invention anywhere you get your podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, uh, uh, Apple Podcasts, you name it. We're there. Subscribe. Give us a rating. Throw some stars at us. Say some nice things about it. It's a great way to support the show. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. 